there are some pretty major things going on prophetically in our world today. And they're continuing to unfold even as we sit here this morning. And uh, one of the most significant developments in recent recent months or even within the last couple of years is what Israeli newspapers are reporting is going to happen tomorrow. And that is that President Trump is going to recognize the Golan Heights as sovereign Israeli territory. Now, that's a big deal. Because the fact is that the international community does not recognize, even though the Bible says that's Israeli territory, even though history says that's Israeli territory, even though the international community, back when Israel was given land, uh, gave that portion of land to them initially, even though they took it back later. The fact is, that is the land of Israel. And the thing that's of curiosity about that is that there is a group there that is uh, a coalition force, if you will, that was named in the book of Ezekiel. And in watching these things develop, we know that in Ezekiel 38 and 39, the hook in the jaw that draws down Israel, draws down Russia, Turkey, Iran, Libya, and the Sudan into the northern portion of Israel is economic. The hook in the jaw is energy-related products, as we, we can see that unfolding very clearly today. And Russia has long been in an economic downturn, and part of that is because of the low price per barrel of oil. Listen, let me tell you something. The Russians are in Syria not because they love the Syrians or they want to end the civil war. The Russians are in Syria because of oil. A story just broke between services. Reuters just reported that two planes landed in Venezuela this morning with Russian troops aboard. Now, is it because they care about the catastrophe known as socialism and what's happening to the people? No, it is an oil-rich country. Now, the fact also is this morning that in the Golan Heights, Israel recently discovered a pocket of oil that is described by those who do oil exploration as 30 times the normal size of other pockets around the world. The Golan Heights is filled with oil. Well, they want it to remain under Syrian control because they are well invested in Syria. So another story broke this week that is of great significance, and that is, and by the way, Benjamin Netanyahu is in the air as we speak, headed for D.C., and he's going to meet with the president, and the joint announcement is expected tomorrow that the United States of America recognizes Israeli sovereignty over the Golan. Now, before he got on the plane this past week, Netanyahu also met with the leaders of Greece and Cyprus. Now, this is important because what they met about is what is called uh, the Mideast Pipeline. Now, this Mideast Pipeline is going to feed Europe with natural gas. Israel, some years ago, off the coast of Haifa, found a trillion cubic foot natural gas bed that they've called the Leviathan. Now, 60% of the gross domestic product of Russia is energy-related products, either petroleum or natural gas. So what Russia doesn't need with an already ailing economy is competition in the market of Europe. But yet here, 
Israel, who by implication is going to be a wealthy nation in the last days, causing the invasion of Israel, now has found natural gas. And for years and years and years, Israel was the only country in the Middle East with no oil. Well, that's not true anymore. Only the oil is in the Golan and Syria and Turkey and Iran have troops on the northern border of Israel already. Now, the interesting thing about that and why I want to bring you up to speed on that is because the Bible says that there are going to be nations that protest this invasion. The United Arab States, or the Gulf States, that is, the UAE, uh, Saudi Arabia specifically, they're called Sheba and Dedan. That gives us a geographic marker telling us where these nations are going to protest the invasion. And they ask, are you coming to take plunder or coming to take booty? So the motivation is clearly economic. But here's the other thing about that scenario in Ezekiel 38 and 39. We're told that it is God himself that responds to these invading forces. He destroys them. Five, six of them lay dead on the mountains of Israel. That is the Russian army, the Iranian army, the Turkish army, the Sudanese army, and the Libyan army are going to be destroyed by God himself in a cataclysmic fashion with earthquakes, hailstones of fire coming down from heaven. Now that's important to remember because the fact is, this is the type of thing that is going to be happening during the tribulation. And because of that, I personally believe that the Ezekiel invasion is going to happen during the tribulation because of the cataclysmic wrath of God being poured out on the invading nations. Now I say that for this reason this morning. There's something that happens before the tribulation. Some people call it the rapture this morning. We'll call it the we out of here. (laughs) Amen. So it is an exciting time to be alive. And I would covet your prayers this coming weekend. Uh, Pastor David Hawking, myself, Mike McIntosh are going to be at the Tulare County Prophecy Conference up in Porterville. And I'll be speaking on Friday and Saturday, and Mike and David are staying over till Sunday. But I'll be back here next Sunday morning. Uh, Please pray for us as we deal with these subjects that are happening, written millennia ago, that are unfolding before our very eyes today. It is a great time to be alive. Amen. Now, if you'd like to read ahead, you can read 1 Samuel 18 for this Wednesday and this morning. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Acts 17, we'll look at verses 1 through 15. And as we do, we'll be praying that the rapture happens during this service. Amen? Why not? Now, last week we ended ended our study of Acts chapter 17 by remembering that we have a higher calling that cannot be restricted by any human law or ordinance. We have been called by God to do two things, many things, but two primarily. We concluded with the fact that these two things override all human laws and attempt of any governmental system to quelch them. And the two things are the Great Commission and defending the inspiration and infallibility of Scripture. Now, we can make our case from Scripture, starting with Acts chapter 5, 27 to 29, that when they had brought the disciples and set them before the council, the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? Whose name? The name of Jesus. And look, you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, 
and intend to bring this man's blood on us or hold us responsible for the death of the Messiah. But Peter and the other apostles answered to their statement about not teaching in this man's name. And they said, we ought to obey God rather than who? Than men. Listen, when the laws of the land forbid or seek to hinder the preaching of Christ as Savior, we obey the word of God, not man. You're going to have to do more than that. We need to get fired up today because there are a lot of crazy things going on in our country. Now, we also know from 1 John 2, 3 to 5, that John says, Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever, what are the next three words? Keeps his word. Truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. Now, as we mentioned last week, the word keep associated with his word is the Greek word tereo. And it means to guard from loss or injury. And thus, we have a responsibility to guard from loss or injury the integrity of Scripture. Now that means we don't bow to demands today to deny Scripture, redefine biblical precepts, or adjust the moral principles and terms that are written in the Word of God. When the law of the land says you cannot adhere to the Bible's definitions of right, wrong, marriage, sexuality, or gender, you take your stand on the Word of God, even if it's the last stand you ever take. Now, we also noted that when the laws of the land say you can't preach Christ, we preach Him anyway, just like Peter said. However, we use wisdom in doing so. And that's what we're going to find this morning. We're going to see that kind of wisdom that comes from above in action this morning as a band of brothers leave Luke behind in Philippi and now make the 100-mile trek to the city of Thessaloniki. Our Bibles uh, read Thessalonica. The city's actual name, even today, is Thessaloniki. Now, once they arrive their previous experiences are going to repeat themselves over and over and over, even as we have seen thus far in our study of Acts. Now, I say that for this reason. I have refrained from tiling our time what is found on the side of a shampoo bottle, wash, rinse, repeat. You're welcome. But I will say... We have the responsibility to wash people in the word of God, to rinse them in the waters of baptism, and then repeat the process over and over and over. This is what we are called to do. Now, I have opted for a title that's a bit more delivered, if you will. And some of you have probably heard the phrase, I'm sure most of us have. Some of you may have even read the book by the title by A.W. Pink, or even another book with the same theme by William Wilberforce, and that is practical Christianity. We often talk about practical Christianity. Living out your faith in a fallen world would be a way to describe practical Christianity. But in light of our closing statement from last week, and in light of our text this morning, What I want to talk to you about is not practical Christianity. What I want to talk to you about is tactical Christianity. And that is our title this morning, Tactical Christianity. Now, let me preface our time also by saying this. There's a very interesting and to some confusing parable that Jesus taught in Luke chapter 16. 
He tells the story of a certain rich man who had given the care and distribution of all of his goods over to a steward. And it came back to the rich man that the steward was not being faithful with the master's goods. And so he called the steward to himself and said, you need to give an account, meaning get the books in order because you're fired. You're no longer worthy to be a steward. And the steward, recognizing that he is in danger of losing everything, devises a plan. And here's his plan in Luke 16, 5 to 9. So the unjust steward, he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world, listen to what Jesus says, the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourself by the unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. Now, remember, this is a parable. And Jesus commends the unjust steward for his shrewdness. He doesn't commend his unjustness. He commends his shrewdness. Now, the word shrewd actually means intelligent or even wise. Now, it's not in the sense of possessing intelligence, but rather in the sense of using our intelligence or wisdom. It can also mean sagacious, which means keen mental discernment or exercising good judgment. In other words, the Lord is saying the people in the world use more wisdom in operating within the world than the righteous do in theirs. Now, he also makes this statement about making friends for yourself by unrighteous mammon. Mammon simply meaning money. You know, it should be understood in light of what Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters in Luke 16, 10, for you'll love the one and hate the other, and you cannot serve God and mammon. But Jesus said, make yourself friends uh, by unrighteous mammon. Now, what he's saying is simply this. The world is operating under a corrupt system. And there is no greater corruption, really, and few things, I should say, corrupt like the love of money. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And therefore, what Jesus is saying, use your money, your possessions, your wealth, even though it's part of an unrighteous system, for the advancement of the gospel and God's kingdom until you are received into your everlasting home. It's not as confusing if you look at it in that light. Now, the point for us this morning, however is that Jesus was saying to his disciples, which would include you and I, that we need to practice tactical Christianity. We need to exercise discernment. We need to be wise in our decision-making process in the midst of a fallen world. Now, we're going to find this to be the case with Paul and company, and I can't help but think that maybe after getting stoned and left for dead in Lystra, Paul didn't say to the crew, You know, maybe we ought to rethink this whole getting beat up and thrown in jail and and pounded the way we have been so far. Maybe he was thinking, why don't we just be a little bit more tactical in our practical Christianity? So we're going to look at verses 1 through 15 of Acts 7, and we're going to start in 1 through 4 in our understanding 
of being tactical and shrewd as we live in ever-darkening times. So would you stand and read with me, please, Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 4. Verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and a great multitude of devout of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. And Lord, we do ask this morning, that you would give us an understanding of living in these days, living in a corrupt system, living in a world that is completely fallen and in need of redemption. Give us, Lord, uh, a better decision-making ability as we seek to live out our lives by faith practically, but help us, Lord, to understand how to do so tactically by our time in your text this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, the group, having made the 100-mile trek from Philippi to Thessaloniki, Paul and company passed by two cities. One is called a city by the sea. That's the meaning of Amphipolis. And another city lay 30 miles away, named after the Greek god Apollo, Apollonia. Now, Thessaloniki was an important city in Macedonia. It was a chief city of Macedonia. It actually was established in 315 B.C., When Alexander the Great had divided up his kingdom, or his kingdom was divided up after he had died, to his four generals, one of them named Cassander, was married uh, to the stepsister of Alexander the Great. It was the capital city of Macedonia. It had a population of about 200,000 people. So it was a big city for that day. It was an important commercial center. And also it was a city governed by the people. It was known as a free city. In other words, it wasn't under Roman domination. They didn't send magistrates there. They didn't send legions of soldiers there. They let Thessaloniki self-govern, even though it was under the uh, umbrella of the Pax Romana or the Roman peace. Now... On their arrival, as was Paul's customary practice, he went straight to the synagogue to preach the resurrected Christ to them and explain and reason from the scriptures that the Messiah of Israel had to suffer and thus rise from the dead. Now, some say three Sabbaths was the duration of Paul's visit to the city. Others say that's just how long he went to the synagogues. He stayed actually much longer. Now, we'll see why I think the uh, right interpretation is that Paul was only there for three weeks and a few moments. But, first of all, the word explaining is an interesting Greek word. It's dianoigal is the Greek term, and it means to open thoroughly. It also can be translated as to expound. Now, we find it used elsewhere, obviously, in Scripture. In Mark seven thirty-one to 35, we have its usage where, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he, Jesus, through, came through the midst of the region of uh, Decapolis, or the Ten Cities, to the Sea of Galilee. Then they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to put his hand on him. And he took him aside from the multitude, put his fingers in his ears. He spat and touched his tongue, then looked up to heaven, sighed, and he said to him, Ephetha, that is, be open. 
Immediately his ears were opened and the impediment of his tongue was loosed and he spoke plainly. Then again, when we have the two dejected disciples walking on the road to Emmaus on the very day Jesus rose from the dead three days after his execution, they said to one another in Luke 24, 32, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he what? Opened the scriptures to us. Now, the same Greek term in our text is used there, and it's translated as opened in both cases. To open the hearing of the deaf and to open the understanding of the word. Now, the word translated as demonstrating means to place alongside. Now, what that means is that when Paul was opening their understanding and reasoning with them, he was placing scripture alongside of scripture to prove what he was teaching as true. And therefore, you might even say he was rightly dividing the word of truth. And that is always a good practice for us today is to let scripture interpret scripture. That's where you say. Now, what was the end result of rightly dividing the word of truth? Some were persuaded. A great multitude of devout Greeks, some of the leading Jewish women of the city also were persuaded and joined with Paul and Silas with their faith in Jesus as Lord. Now, Romans 10:17 reminds us that faith comes by hearing. Hearing what? Hearing by the word of God. Now, this is going to prove itself out wherever it is practiced. And that's why it is such a dangerous thing to marginalize, minimize, allegorize, or downright disparage and change what is in the scripture. Faith, saving faith, faith that causes your eternal destiny and life to change, comes by hearing the word of God. Now, anytime the word is properly expounded, and scripture is interpreting scripture, people are going to come to saving faith. Now, we'll also see in our next section, some people are not. Now, when the scriptures are expounded and rightly divided, some will be saved no matter where and when this is done. And this brings us to our point regarding tactical Christianity. Now, Paul and company passed by two cities. Wouldn't having heard the word of God produce saving faith in people in those cities? Of course it would have. The formula is the no best formula. It works everywhere. So why would Paul and company pass by these two cities where there was potential fruit? Wouldn't a city that is dedicated to a mythological deity like Apollo be the perfect place to preach Christ and him crucified and resurrected? What about a city by the sea? It had to be a populous area because people to this day gather on the seacoast of any given city because that's where people want to live. Do you know that 50% of the United States population lives on a coastline in our own country? This had to be a prime target for preaching. But other than spending the night during their three-day, hundred-mile walk in these two cities, Paul and Silas did not preach there. So the question for us is why, and our answer is part of tactical Christianity, and it's just this. Listen this morning. Tactical Christianity is simply spirit-led living. Tactical Christianity is simply spirit-led living. Now, I want you to think about this. If Paul was only going to go to places 
that needed Jesus, he would have never left Damascus. Damascus needed Jesus, right? But the Lord was leading Paul. The Lord was leading Silas. The Lord was leading the group to where he wanted them to proclaim his word so many could come to faith. Now, it isn't that the Lord didn't care about these other two cities. We don't know anything about them in the modern terms, but we do know what's happened with Thessaloniki because the city still exists today. But let me remind you of something that's true for you and true for me. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And what's the end result? And he will direct your path. Now, we could argue starting in the capital city of Macedonia would be the best place to start. But the truth is that Paul and Silas were being led by the Spirit. And we know this because of what we read in Acts chapter 16. Remember in 16, 6, and 7, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were, what's the next word? Forbidden. By who? By the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. And after they had come to Mycenae, they tried to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit did what? Didn't permit them, didn't let them go in that direction. Listen, people everywhere need to hear about Jesus. He's the only one that can save them, amen? People need to hear about Jesus. They need to hear of Christ crucified and resurrected. But there are places where the Lord is leading for whatever reason, most likely the fruit being greater. And this is something only the Lord knows. And therefore, we need to be spirit led. Our first tactic in living a tactical Christian life is to simply walk in the spirit. Now, I know what you're thinking. I can see it from the tone of your look. How do we do that? Well, I'm glad you asked. It's quite simple, actually. And it goes back to Paul's experience when he was still Saul on the road to Damascus. After the Lord said, Saul, Saul, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. And he said, who are you, Lord? To which the Lord replied, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Who knows what what Saul said next? Anybody remember? Lord, what would you have me to do? Listen this morning, I want to challenge you. Don't ever go out of your house on any given day without first asking that question in prayer. Lord, what would you have me to do? Lord, who would you have me to talk to? Lord, what Christian would you have me to encourage? Who do you want me to share my faith with? What do you have for me today? Don't ever leave the house again after this day without first asking the Lord that question. Ask the Lord to use you. I want you to think about this. Ask the Lord to use you. What's he going to say? Nah, not you. Absolutely not. He wants to use you. He wants to lead people to himself through you. He wants you to be an encouragement and an exhorter to other believers. He has things prepared beforehand for you to walk in. He wants to bring glory to his name through you. He wants people to get saved and come to know Jesus through you. He wants to use you. So start the day saying, what do you want me to do? Lord. Because if he is the Lord, and if he is your Lord, that's the only suitable question to start every day with. 
Because Lord implies master. Lord implies the one who gives the directions. Lord implies the one that we trust with all of our hearts instead of leaning on our own understanding, acknowledging, acknowledging him in all our ways, believing he's going to direct our path. Do you believe that God has something for you to do every day? Amen. Well, of course he does. We're far outnumbered. There's people all over the world that need to hear about Jesus. So there's plenty of work for all of us to do. Even as Jesus said, look at the fields. They're white with grain. They're ready to be harvested, but there's not enough laborers. Pray that the Lord would send laborers and laborers would go into the fields. But we also need to recognize something else that's going to rear its head in our second section. Because sometimes the Spirit leads us into places that aren't so fun, so to speak. So let's pick up our text and read verses 5 down to the halfway point of verse 10, stopping at the word Berea. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, them being Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them. And these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Then the brethren, what's the next word? Immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Now, it's interesting if we consider how perception is such a strange thing in our day and really in in every day and season of history. That's why uh, Isaiah talked about what are those who call evil good and good evil? Because the fact is some people see good as evil and some people see evil as good in our day. And the truth is this is something that is a matter of the human heart. There are things that people see as good today, like a woman's reproductive right that others see as evil and rightfully so. But the fact is, in Thessaloniki, they saw the good that Paul and Silas did as turning the world upside down. When actually the reverse is what was true because the world was turned upside down when Adam and Eve fell in the garden. And it's been upside down ever since. They weren't turning the world upside down. They were turning it aright. They were turning it right side up. But perception was guiding their decisions and direction. And I do a lot of things in preparation for Thursday nights. I read a lot of uh, international papers and and, uh, websites and watch different YouTube videos that people send me or that I stumble on myself. And I ran into one the other day that was just stunning and talks about uh, or exposes rather a lot of what we're seeing going on in our world. And it was a a group that were, I don't want to say that they were pro-Trump, but they were pro-conservative. There's no question about that. And they were defending the freedom of speech. And there was a group known as Antifa, which is anti-fascism, which is what that stands for, that were protesting against these ex-military guys. And some of these guys were some big dudes. And one of the things I saw in this one video is there was some kid, he had his mask on and all the other things they do, trying to hide their identity. He couldn't weigh 100 pounds dripping wet. 
And he's screaming in the face of this ex-Marine who had to weigh 260 pounds and could have snapped him like a twig. But this kid, I believe, was so demonically driven that he had no sense of fear when he should have. And he is screaming and cussing this guy out. And this guy, and it was, uh, you know, the rally was also in support of our first responders and uh, specifically our police officers. And this Marine was trying to tell this young man there has to be rules. Why? He says there has to be rules and there have to be people to enforce those rules. Why? He said, well, because look at history. The heart of man, this guy wasn't a Christian. He just said the heart of man is ugly. It's dark. Look at what mankind has done. There has to be rules to be obeyed and people to enforce them. He said, this kid says, no, there don't. You just need to make rules that people like to obey. Hmm. Well, it doesn't matter what the set of rules are and say, there are some people who are not going to like to obey them. And the fact is, there needs to be structure, order, direction, and the best one to give us that direction is the Word of God. Now, in James 3, 14 and 15, we're told, but if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and what? Demonic, for where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. This is exactly what's happening with the Jews who were not persuaded. They were envious and therefore every evil thing was present in their actions. They didn't like seeing people come to Jesus, just as there are people today who don't like seeing people come to Jesus. So they gathered a group of evil men. And that phrase would probably better be translated as men under the influence of evil. And they used him to stir the city up into an uproar. And they attacked the house of Jason where Paul and Silas had been staying. Now, let me ask you a question this morning. Are there those in our country today who are stirring up the rest of the country against the church? Are there those who are saying it's the church that's the problem? It's the church with their antiquated moral code. It's the church that isn't forward-thinking and progressive. It's the church that's slowing things down, and they're the ones we have to silence. And this is exactly what was happening here. Only the Jews were the vehicle, uh, the unpersuaded Jews were the vehicle that the enemy was using. When they didn't find Paul and Silas, they took the man who owned the house, drug him and others to the magistrates of the city, and accused him of creating an insurrection against Caesar by claiming that Jesus Christ is king. Well, Jesus is king, but he's not just any king. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, this caused the city to turn against the group, and they made Jason and those with him post-bail. We would understand that. But it was a little bit different when you offered security because basically what they were doing is they offered financial security that Paul and Silas would obey what the magistrates commanded. In other words, they took money from them and said, make sure these guys get out of town. Now, when Paul and Silas were located, the brethren who put up the security money immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night. They became tactical in their dealing with the magistrates. Now, in 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 and 18, Paul says, but we brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, 
In other words, Paul said, we didn't get to stay long at Thessaloniki. And that's why I believe the three Sabbaths was a duration of Paul and Silas stay in the city. But he says, even though after a short time we were taken away in presence, but not in heart, we endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again. But what happened? Satan hindered them. Now, this is also why it's likely, as I said, that Paul's short, uh, stay was short. But he's also wanting to return to Thessaloniki. And it's most likely that Satan was hindering them through the same means. And that is public disapproval. They didn't want them there. Now, one thing for us to note before we make our point, and that is that tactical Christianity is also very practical. And Jason and company put up money. Paul didn't want them to lose their money and damage their livelihood. Or maybe they even put up Jason's house as security. Who knows? But the fact is, Paul and Silas also... Now, listen, hang on. This is deep. Paul and Silas couldn't preach anymore if they were dead. I'll give you time to write that down. Now, that's why I say they became tactical. They had a history. Okay, Lystra, Paul, listen. Things didn't go well. They stoned you and left you for dead. Philippi, things didn't go so hot there either. They beat you with rods to a pulp, put your feet in stocks, and then locked you up in prison. And now, how about we just slip you out of town and avoid all this under the cover of night? Now, here's our second tactical point about living tactical Christianity. Listen this morning. Persecution is a Christian reality, but it's not our pursuit. Persecution is a Christian reality, but it's not our pursuit. Listen, we don't go looking for trouble. We don't go looking for trouble. And there's a lot of belligerent Christians out there. I was thinking uh, about a time, I've shared this with you before, but for some of you, you'll hear it for the first time. Uh, For the others of you, you can just laugh courteously. We were going to an air show, and the parking lot required a shuttle to take us to the actual grounds of the air show. So we parked in the parking lot, got on the shuttle, and there was a man standing there, And this is a closed little shuttle bus that holds like 30 people. And he's screaming at the top of his lungs, You're all going to burn! You need to repent or die! So I pulled out the Hey Bro card and said, Hey Bro, how many people have you led to Jesus today? Well, none. They don't want to hear about it. They're sinners. They're going to burn in hell. I said, Have you told anybody God loves them today? Have you told them that their life and eternal destiny can change today? I mean, have you presented something maybe a little more positive to them and introduced the word love and hope and things like that? Well, we arrived, and the last thing I heard as I was getting off the bus, You're all going to burn! You're going to die! I don't think that he caught any fish that day. I don't think anybody came to Jesus. I don't think anybody left thinking, You know, I really need to ponder that guy's message. His tactics were terrible. There was a man who it was reported used to walk the beach in Huntington Beach. And he'd walk up to people who were laying there doing, you know, the sunbathing or whatever they were doing, hanging out at the beach. And he would say, do you know if you're going to heaven when you die? No. Would you like to ask Jesus into your heart as Lord and Savior? No. And then he'd say, well, go to hell. And he'd walk away. 
I don't think that was a very wise tactic either because I don't think anybody had that same type of thinking with the guy on the shuttle bus. You know, man, that really resonated with me. I don't think anybody came away with that. But listen this morning. When we think of men like Jim Elliott, called to the Aka Indians of Ecuador, we need to remember he went there to preach, not to die. He went there to proclaim truth to a known violent group of Indians. Was he unaware of the risks? Of course not. Was he ignorant of the possibility of death? Absolutely no. As a matter of fact, he wrote in his journal on October 28, 1949, a very famed and often repeated statement, which is, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. So he well understood that there were risks involved in reaching out to these Indians. And listen, Jim Elliott was a selfless man. He had a great love for Christ and sinners. His call was divine to be sure, and his call cost him his life without question. But his life bore fruit as the very tribe that killed him came to faith in Jesus. Now, I didn't know this until I was reading up on Jim Elliott's story over the weekend. And in recent years, the actual Aka Indian who killed Jim Elliott now travels with Jim Elliott's son telling people about Jesus at Stephen Curtis Chapman concert. And Jim Elliott's son was telling the story that he was being interviewed by a major news network and they just couldn't wrap their head around the fact that not only could he forgive the man that killed his dad, that he could love the man who killed his dad. And he said, well, yes, I do. And the reporter said, is this the man who held the spear that ended the life of your father and his friends? And it really hit Jim Elliott's son. And he said, no, he looks like him. He talks like him. He sounds like him. But he's in Christ, so he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Now listen, there are times where God sends his children to places that are dangerous. But let me make our point and endorse it like this. If you're sharing your faith with some guy that's six foot ten, three hundred pounds and has no body fat, and he says he's going to rip your face off if you don't shut up, he might not be lying. So unless the Lord tells you to stay, maybe you should slip away by night and shake the dust off your feet and look for a more fertile opportunity. And sometimes the right thing to do is to slip away and look for more fertile ground to sow seed. Sometimes the Spirit may lead you to take one on the chin for the sake of the gospel. But the fact is, persecution, though a Christian reality, it's not to be our pursuit. And this is where shrewdness comes into play. Now, I want you to think about this this morning. The majority of us will do more for God's kingdom by living for him than by dying for him. So it was interesting. I was in, invited to a situation where uh, actually uh, Roy Disney's daughter was there, and she had made a movie about gun control. I didn't know what this whole meeting was about, but it uh, wound up turning in an interesting direction as uh, several pastors decided that uh, I was their target. 
because I believe exactly what Jesus said about to his disciples. We'll read part of the story here this morning. Uh, when you go, sell your coat and take a short sword with you because, you know, it's going to be perilous out there. The first time he told them to take nothing, the next time he said, take a short sword. And I said, I believe that tells us we have the right to defend ourselves. And, you know, man, some of these guys came unglued at this meeting, started yelling at me, which was awesome. <laughs> and one guy's argument was, Jesus died. Yeah, that's what he came to do. And his death paid the sin penalty for billions. That was a productive death. That was why he came. And I told the sponsor of this event, listen, there's a big difference in dying for your wallet and dying for your witness. And sometimes we just have to be shrewd and get ourselves out of the way. And we don't have to just sit there and let them shoot us or kill us or maim us or any of those things. And here is our proof in Scripture. Paul, stoned, left for dead. Paul, beaten with rods in prison, feet in stocks. Next encounter, Paul, slipped away by night. Because that's enough of that. Even though he'd have other encounters in the future where he would endure suffering. And suffering is part of the will of God. But we don't go out and seek it. We don't go out and try and get beat up for Jesus so we can say, I was persecuted for righteousness sake. That's where you say. Now, Acts 7, 55 to 60 says, But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, speaking of Stephen, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, ran at him with one accord, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down, cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he died or fell asleep. Now, Acts 14, 19 and 20 says, The Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there and to Lystra, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around, gathered around him, he rose up, went into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derb. Now, the point of this is that when Jesus encountered Saul on the Damascus road, he said, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. I believe that Stephen's death, Stephen's prayer for those who were killing him, goaded Paul constantly. What does this guy have that I don't have? What is it that he sees that I don't see? He said he saw the Lord standing at the right hand of majesty, standing uh, in the throne room of God. What did this guy know that I don't know? Now, Stephen stoning was, I believe, instrumental in Saul's conversion and transition to Paul. Paul stoning did nothing. Paul stoning didn't lead to a revival or somebody, at least not according to Scripture, other people coming to faith. Now, this is why tactical Christianity is simply spirit-led living. We don't go looking for trouble. And at times, the best thing to do is shake the dust off our feet rather than uh, leaving an encounter beaten up or even dead. So, let's finish up with 10 to 15 if you're still here. All right, read along with me, please. Let's catch all of verse 10 again. 
Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go out to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. Now, here's why wash, rinse, repeat would be a good title for our time because that's exactly what we see. In Berea, they go to the synagogue. They did what they did in Thessaloniki. There was a more favorable reception and many of them believed. They believed because they searched the scriptures daily. And some believe that because the word daily is employed there, that Paul taught more than just on the Sabbath. He met with them every day to reason with them from the scriptures. Greeks, prominent women, this time men, believed also. But... When word got back to the unpersuaded Jews in Thessaloniki, they did what they did to Paul and Lystra. They chased Paul and Silas from one city to another. This time, there would be no stoning because the group had become more tactical. And now they did what they did in Thessalonica, uh, Niki in, in uh, transferring him to Berea. They immediately sent Paul on a ship 300 miles away to the city of Athens. Now, this time, like they just left Luke and Philippi, they leave Silas and Timothy to stay behind because an infant church had been born there. And after arriving in Athens, Paul sends word back to Berea via those who escorted him to Athens for Silas and Timothy to come at their first opportunity. Now, in Luke 9, 1 to 6, we're told that he, Jesus, called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God, and to heal the sick. And he said to them, take nothing for the journey, neither staffs, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And whoever will not receive you when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So they departed and went through the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. This is the first half of the story I told you before, when Jesus said, to his disciples. Last time I sent you out, told you don't take anything. This time I'm telling you, take a money bag, sell your cloak, buy a short sword, a machaira, and so you can defend yourselves against thieves and robbers uh, during your journeys. Now, we also know when the gospel had breached the city limits of Jerusalem in Acts 4, therefore those who were scattered went everywhere doing what? Preaching the word. Paul and Silas go to a town. They preach in the synagogue. Some get saved. They get run out of town. They go to the next town. They preach in the synagogue. Some get saved. They run out of town. Jesus sends the disciples out. They go from one city to the next doing two things, preaching and healing. Those chased out of Jerusalem went everywhere preaching the word in Judea and Samaria. Now, this gives us our final and concluding point for the morning concerning tactical Christianity. And that's simply this. Listen this morning. This is really the most important thing for us to come away with today. Listen, altering our message is never the right tactic. Altering our message is never the right tactic. 
If you are threatened, as Paul and Silas were, you don't adjust your message to one that is more palatable to those who have been offended. Or you don't try and avoid an uproar because society disagrees with your biblical teaching. We don't change the message of the gospel. We don't change the meanings of the word of God, even if it leads to persecution. Because Paul would say in Romans 1, 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Then he gives a chronology for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Greek simply meaning the non-Jew. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, he quotes Habakkuk 2, 4, the just shall live by what? Faith. Now, Paul wrote these words to the Romans when Christians were being killed by the Romans. When persecution was on the rise, he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Listen, people today are demanding we change our message. People don't like our message today. They want us to accommodate society's fascination with social justice and create a social gospel in response. Now, if you don't think this is happening in our world today, a couple of things I mentioned the other night, a world news briefing. I think many of you probably know what Vimeo is. Vimeo is a video hosting site and a lot of uh, different businesses and churches will put their videos of their service rather than using up their own website space. They'll put it on Vimeo. Well, Vimeo removed all 400 plus of a church's videos because they held a conference talking about uh, sexuality and defending it from a biblical perspective as well as marriage. So they removed all their videos and deleted them because it's out of step with what the world wants. Google deleted a video presenting marriage from the Christian perspective because some employees at YouTube said they found it to be offensive. So they simply removed it. Now listen, our tactical response to these things doesn't include changing the message of the gospel or God's word to accommodate society's wishes. The fact is, Psalm 111, 2 through 8, and I'll leave you with this. It says, the works of the Lord are great, studied by all who have pleasure in them. His work is honorable and glorious, and his righteousness endures how long? Forever. He has made his wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. He has given food to those who fear him. He will be ever mindful of his covenant. He has declared to his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. Excuse me, the works of his hands are verity and justice. All his precepts are sure. They stand fast for how long? Forever and ever. And are done in truth and righteousness. People are stirring up the crowds in opposition to the word of God today. Some have made it their aim, like the Jews from Thessaloniki, to pursue those who stand for and on the word of God unashamedly and stop their proclamation that Jesus is Lord and has risen from the dead. So do we change our message because people don't like it? Paul didn't. Jesus sent the disciples out. They did the same thing. Preach and heal, preach and heal, preach and heal, preach and heal. Didn't matter what city they went to. Paul, synagogue, preach Christ. Some believe, others reject it. Paul, move on to the next city. Preach Christ. Some believe, others reject it. Next city, preach Christ. Some believe, others reject it. And that's the Christian experience. So along the way, as we live it out practically, we need to be tactical as well. We don't pursue getting beat up. I don't want to get beat up. You? I don't have a lot of people come up and threaten me to beat me up. Size has its advantages. 
But neither do I go out looking for opportunities to make somebody mad. And the truth is, we just need to be a little more tactical in these last days because Jesus is coming soon and people need to hear that he loves them, died to save them, and they can only be saved through him. That's the Christian tactical life. Somebody say, Father, we are grateful this morning for your word. We thank you for the things that we have gleaned and learned from the uh, exploits of Paul and Silas and the wisdom the shrewdness that was employed as they dealt with the various situations they were facing. We thank you, Lord, that should it be within your will that we suffer for doing good, as Peter referenced in 1 Peter 4, Lord, that we can know and realize that on their part, you may be blasphemed, but on our part, you're being glorified. So, Lord, help us to just walk with wisdom as we go to the world and preach the gospel and stand in defense of your word in these last days. And as they seek to create uproars around us, may we not vacillate, may we not amend or adapt your word to something that's more accommodating to society's wishes. Because, Lord, we recognize that it's only the truth of your word that can make men free. So may we speak the truth in love. And when others hear the word of God, may they come to saving faith. Help us, Lord, from this day forward to begin each day asking, Lord, what would you have me to do? We pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people answered by saying, Amen. Amen. Hey, pray for us again, if you would, uh, this weekend. Really been thinking about, you know, there's a lot of attacks on prophecy today. People mocking anybody that teaches prophecy. And, you know, I've talked to several people over the years about the issue. And, you know, a lot of people think because I do world news briefing and speak at prophecy conferences, that's all I ever do. We teach the Bible here. Amen. Amen. But I've also realized I never teach on prophecy here. So when I get back, I'm actually going to do one of the messages I'm going to do at the conference. And it's on the rapture of the church. And what I, and it's basically not you need to be pre-trib or pre-wrath or mid-trib or uh, post-wrath or, or post-trib or whatever. It's not about the timing. But my hope when I get back is we're going to look at the rapture of the church. And not that you can become more aware of it, but that you can defend it. So we'll make a biblical case from Old and New Testament for the rapture of the church. So we'll see you next. I'll see you Wednesday, First Samuel 18, but we'll see you next Sunday as we talk about the rapture of the church. Maybe we'll just experience the rapture of the church and it won't be a Wednesday or Sunday. I'm good with that. How about you? Would you all stand?